We got a Bible study in front of us. Acts chapter 19 is where we're going to be. If you need a Bible, we have a couple Bibles for you. Does anyone need a Bible this morning? Would love for you to follow along. I'm not making this stuff up. It is right there in the Bible for you to see. Anyone need a Bible? All right, Acts 19. Let's pray and we'll get into the text this morning. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name and, and we're, so, we're so grateful, we're so thankful that we have your word. We have your spoken and written and recorded word, God, and it's, it's life. It's, it's a lamp. It's a hammer, God. It's, it's all these amazing things that can be sown into our lives and bear fruit. And God, we want that to happen. I just pray that you would come and anoint my lips to teach your word in a way that is faithful and honorable and true. And it would exalt you, Jesus, that we would all leave here with a greater understanding of of who you are and what you've called us to do in response to who we are, who you've made us to be. So God, come, you be the teacher. Holy Spirit, anoint my lips to teach your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, Elias. As we get back to the book of Acts, Remember that we're kind of in the middle of Paul's third missionary journey. We're, we're, we're watching it kind of near its end. We're going to see as we finish chapter 19 this morning and we get into chapter 20 next week that he, he kind of blitzes through Luke, who's being inspired by the Holy Spirit to record the events. He kind of blitzes through the last few stops as he brings to a culmination the third missionary journey. And I, I want us just to kind of think about that because as it reaches its end, we're left with the question saying, well, well, what was accomplished, right? And we've talked about a lot. A lot has been accomplished. Last week, we talked about how ignition has begun in the city of Ephesus, how God has lit a fire in the hearts of, of people, Christians, followers of Jesus. They are, they're so on fire for him. They're casting off all the things that contend against him. Remember, they had that, that huge burn pile of books and charms and whatever else it may have been in Ephesus that they were into before They came to know Jesus and they just burn. It's literally an ignition. A fire is taking place here. And so things are working. Things are happening. God is doing a great focus. But what I want to do, I want to take our focus off of the individual hearts of the people in Ephesus this morning. And I want us to look at the whole of Ephesus this morning. I want us to look at the city, the culture. I want us to look at what happens as a, as a whole. And I want you to see that these disciples, Paul, and then all of his traveling companions, they've left an incredible impact. They've been leaving their mark, the mark of Jesus here on this city. And so I want us to focus in upon that and kind of see what that looks like. And I want us to keep that thought in our minds. Because we all have the same opportunity. We're deciding today the mark that we're going to leave tomorrow. So I want you to kind of be thinking about that. We want to be culture changers. We want to see what God is doing here. And we want to walk in it the same way. So keep that in mind. Picking up where we left off last week. Chapter 19 verse 21 says. When these things were accomplished. Paul purposed in his spirit. When he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. So he sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a time. As we stop there for for a moment, look at kind of the snapshot that Luke, our author of the book of Acts, is giving us as it pertains to Paul's heart. 
Paul knows that this third missionary journey is, is starting to reach its conclusion. He's, you can start to see he's thinking about the other places that he wants to visit while he's out here on mission. So we can kind of take a look at this, refresh our memories here a little bit. There it is. We can see Paul. He's been over here in Ephesus. He's just left. He's kind of in this stage, but he's starting to think, I want to go to Macedonia. I want to visit Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea, some of the churches that are there. I want to go to Achaia because that's where the the church of Corinth is. I want to visit them. I want to strengthen these disciples. I want to encourage them in the Lord. But then he says, but I really want to get back here to Jerusalem. He wants to get back there to the feast. And I really, 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 it's not even on the map yet. I want to get to Rome. And I love that we're starting to see this foreshadowing in the book of Acts that Paul says, I want to go to Rome. I want to see it. I want to share Jesus with these people. I want to share the gospel with these people. Rome, the very center of civilization here in this era, right? The Roman Empire is the time period. here. He's like, I want to go to Rome. And it's just this desire that he didn't put in his heart. That's the desire that God has put in his heart and God's going to see it through. But it's foreshadowing because we know that's where the book of Acts is going. We're going to cover it in more detail as we go through it, but it all ends up in Rome. That's where it's going to be. But I just want you to think about this statement. Paul says, kind of at this point in the comfort of Ephesus, I can't wait to go to Rome. I want to see Rome. We're going to see later. Jesus is going to appear to Paul and say, Paul, be of good cheer. You're going to Rome. You're going to bear witness to me in Rome. But Paul, you're not going to know or maybe appreciate the way I'm going to get you there. Because while this is Paul's third missionary journey, many of us are aware there's no fourth missionary journey of Paul. Now, there's some speculation of some other missionary things that he does, but it's, it's not a fourth missionary journey like the first three have been, as we've talked about in the book of Acts. Because by the time he gets back to Jerusalem, midpoint of chapter 21, he's going to be arrested. And he's going to be in chains and then led place to place. And eventually, after he appeals to Caesar, then he gets to Rome. And yeah, there's a shipwreck and a snake bite and a whole bunch of beatings, but he gets to Rome. But I want us to think about that. That's kind of where we're going. And it's on Paul's heart. We're starting to see some of this foreshadowing. So he's even thinking, is it time for me to leave now? And he's going to decide, nope, I'm going to stay in Ephesus, in Asia, in Ephesus a little bit longer. But I'm going to send Timothy and Erastus, two of his traveling companions, two fellow missionaries with him. They're going to go ahead to Macedonia while he stays a little bit longer. And it's, it's comical to me because I think this is the Lord's timing It seems right after he makes this decision to stay in Ephesus, look at what happens. Verse 23, and about that time, there arose a great commotion about the way for a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. He called them together with the workers of similar occupation and said, men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see in here that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. So not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. So about this time, right, it just so happens about this time that Paul decides, I'm going to stay in Ephesus a little while longer, that now we're starting to see some cultural impact taking place from his presence, or, or better stated, the presence of the Lord working through him while he's been here. 
this great commotion takes place. We're going to see it's a huge uproar. It's a riot in the city of Ephesus. But I want us to focus on first, what is this commotion all about? What's it over? Verse 23 says, the commotion arose because of the way. Right, And that is a, a name that was the first name for the Christian movement, for the church movement in history. It was called The Way. Right, We've seen that in the book of Acts multiple times. So this is showing the impact that they've had on the culture. They're upset about these Christians walking the way like Jesus walked, teaching the way Jesus taught, living the life that Jesus promised he would, giving. He would, he would give those who follow after him. But think about how amazing that is. I mean, I'm, I'm loving seeing the impact that is happening here. And I want that to be said of us. I want us to be doing things with such love and such radical light according to the way that is causing commotion in the city. That is causing commotion in our neighborhoods, in our families, because they're just having trouble reconciling the two. What are these people about? And again, they're about the way. Now, we talked about this last week. This is a little bit of a play on words from Jesus' own words, what he said. But John 14, 6, this idea of the church being called the way, it comes from this. When Jesus said to, to, to them, to him, the, the other disciples who were asking, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. And I bring this up again because the Lord brought it up again, right? Two weekends in a row we're talking about this, but that's sometimes how it works. God's like, I want, I want you to talk about that again. I say, Roger that, Lord. I'm your servant. So here we are looking at it again. But I want us to know a little bit differently. This is, this is not what I said. I didn't come up with this. This is not what some other pastor said. This isn't what some Christian theologian in church history said. This isn't even what the church itself came up with, right? These are Jesus' own words. And I want you to know in the original Greek, when this would have been spoken, the Koine Greek, it's in the emphatic tense, which, which means it sounds like this. Jesus saying, I, Jesus, encounter distinction to all others am the way. I, Jesus, encounter distinction to all others am the truth. I, Jesus, encounter distinction to all others am the life. And no man, no woman, no person has ever, can ever, will ever come to the Father unless they come through faith in me. That's what Jesus says. And that's the problem here in Ephesus, right? We talked about it last week. They're very pluralistic. What does pluralism mean? It means that it's, it's all roads lead to the same destination, right? And we, we see it flies right in the flat face of what Jesus's own words say. It's just not true. In a world that wants to be inclusive and says, well, well, I think you can be this and also claim to be this. And that's OK. That's not what Jesus's words say. There's 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 not. It's a it's a narrow road. It's black and white or sometimes red. The word of God is. And it's it's very specifically speaking what he wants to convey. So to be a Christian, to be a church centered upon Jesus, we, we need to be about his way, his word, uplifting what he has to say, which means for us, we preach Jesus crucified for the sins of the world. We preach, we preach Jesus resurrected from the dead. We preach Jesus offering forgiveness, eternal life, justification, his righteousness to whosoever would call upon his name. That's the only way to be saved, the only way to receive God's gift of grace. So again, I'm bringing all this up again. You church, you know this, but that's what's going up here. And that's become a problem. This city of Ephesus is having a problem with the way that this church is representing. It's starting to affect the culture around them. 
And what I love to see this is what we're really seeing is the church is functioning as the church is designed to function as a thermostat for the area that they're planted. Have you ever heard about that? Like that saying the thermometer and the thermostat? You probably have, but just in case you haven't, when you think of a thermometer, what does a thermometer tell you, right? A thermometer can only really do one thing. You put a thermometer in a situation and it can just give you feedback of what the environment is, right? And I think some of us Christians, we kind of function like that. I'm here to tell you things are getting bad. I'm here to tell you that things aren't going to, so well here. I'm here to tell you there's not a whole lot of Christians in this area, right? Just like a thermometer. Yep, I'm just reading you back feedback of what's going on. What does a thermostat do? A thermostat is able to turn up the heat when the heat needs to be turned up. A thermostat is able to turn the cool down when it needs to be turned down. A thermostat is able to change the atmosphere around it. And we can't look at this church in Ephesus and not see they function like a thermostat. It's affecting the culture, living as the way, living the way, following Jesus's way. It's changing the atmosphere around them. Again, we saw last week, many people are burning books. It was estimated 50,000 pieces of silver was the cost of how many books were burned, how many books full of pagan rituals and, and, and these, this false religion. They just burned them all up because they said, we don't want any of this nor do we want anybody else to have them either. People are forsaking all because they're following Jesus. But not everyone, not everyone is excited about what is happening here. Not everyone is putting their faith in Jesus as we've seen in every place the gospel has gone. Some reject the way. Some see the light of God and they say, nope, I don't want my sins to be exposed. I don't want to confess that Jesus is greater than me. I don't want to put my faith and follow him. I'm going to try and hide. And so they reject, and and we see that. We see a man named Demetrius who's starting to lead this rebellion or this uprising against the church here in Ephesus. We're told that he's a silversmith, which means he makes things out of silver, and his best-selling item is a silver shrine made to the goddess of Diana. And again, thinking background of the greater Ephesus in this day, here in Ephesus, it's one of the centers of temple worship for the goddess Diana. And the the great temple was there in Ephesus. We talked about it last week. I showed kind of an artist rendition of what was one of the seven wonders of the world in that day. But people came from all over the world to see it, to worship at it. It's a unique place for it. And, and what do we still do today? You go and you, you visit a, a neat place. What do you do? You want to buy a souvenir, right? Hopefully not souvenirs like these, you know, but like a t-shirt of, you know, a picture or something. Right? I went to Yosemite. I bought a Yosemite t-shirt, right? That's not, you know, an image of the goddess Diana, but a t-shirt, right? But when we think about it, that's, that's what they would do. They'd come to Ephesus and they'd go to the silversmiths and they'd buy these little idols of the goddess Diana and they'd take them home. And they'd say, well, where'd you go on your summer trip? And they'd say, oh, I went to Ephesus. Look, here's my little goddess Diana, right? That's what's happening here. Except now that the church has been here, now that Paul's been in Ephesus for three years, teaching at the school of Tyrannus for two, and and going in the synagogues and the house-to-house churches for the other year, the culture is starting to change. People aren't buying those things anymore, right? This whole business market for these little idol images in Diana is going down because the, the Lord is moving in such a powerful way in the church, and I want, you to, I want you to see this. I really don't want you to miss this part. Don't miss the message. Please, please, please. Very, very important. Verse 26, what is the message? This is coming from Demetrius' own mouth. He's an adversary. 
This is the message. This is the part that he, re he retains. This Paul, he says, has persuaded and turned away many people by saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. I want you to catch that. That's all Paul has to say about this matter. Those idols that you're worshiping, they're empty. Idols are nothing. They are not gods which are made with human hands. That's all Paul has to say about that. Why am I passionate about this? Why is that so important? Because Paul didn't take a stance against Diana when he was here in Ephesus. He took a stance for Jesus. He spent much more time teaching about who the God of the universe is, what the gospel message has to do with, what it accomplishes, what the Son of God has done, coming in the likeness of men, walking among us, among us, living out a perfect life, sinless, and then laying his life down for the sins of the world, rising again on the third day. That's the power of the gospel. That is the power unto salvation. We're going to see later that they're not going to be able to accuse two more of Paul's traveling companions of speaking blasphemy against Diana. Think about how heavy that is. That means they didn't speak evil against Diana. I want you just to think about that. Take whatever thing you don't like in the world. And I want you to ask yourself, how much evil do I speak about that thing? How much Christians? The Christian, we are notorious for speaking out against a whole lot of things. And there may be a time and a place for that. You work that out for the Lord. But I want to ask you, how much more so do you speak for Jesus? How much more so do you speak for the way of salvation found through faith in him? If I'm taking a pulse of the Christian church in this day and age, we are far more quick to point out what we're against than to ever mention who we're for. Think about that. You just let that settle in on your own hearts. When you're in a situation, we are quick to pounce on what we're against when that person says it. Do we ever tell them who we're for? Do we ever tell them about the God who loves them and died in their place as he did ours? Do we ever tell them about Jesus? It is powerful to me when you see a culture being changed, like we're seeing Ephesus. Ephesus is right here. And yet they don't have anyone speaking evil against against the goddess Diana. They don't have anybody taking this stance and blaspheming. Again, I'm not saying it probably never happened, but we're going to see in this situation, those accusations do not stick. Paul is spending way more time simply telling people what you're worshiping isn't worthy to worship. These idols that you're worshiping, these things made by human hands, he says, think about this logically. We live and move and breathe because God has made us, right? We didn't create ourselves. He's saying we have been created by an awesome God, which means by logical, logical conclusion, anything we make is less than us because we made it. And you follow that the other way. We are less than the God who made us. He's worthy of worship. It turns things around. And that's what he's speaking. That, that's his whole case. And yes, then he's definitely preaching the gospel and he's teaching the school of Tyrannus. But all this is happening. And, and as he's not wasting his time tearing down Diana, he's got a lot more time to build up and glorify Jesus. This commotion is going to be about the way that the church is moving, the way that the church is, is living, who the church is preaching, not what the church is against. So as we see here in the text, this is what happens when Jesus gets high and lifted up, just as he promised, he draws all people to himself. And when people start to see Jesus, when, they, when we as individuals, when people see Jesus for who he is, 
However they get there, you bring the sinner to Jesus. He can make them a saint. He makes them a worshiper. He can take care of their sin. But once they see him, to see Jesus is to love him. And to love Jesus is to want to walk with him. And to want to walk with him is to be one of his disciples. And to be one of his disciples is to be a follower of the way. It's this beautiful pattern. But that's what we want. We want to bring people to Jesus. We don't want to put a bunch of obstacles in front of them. We're not trying to clean up the sinner. We are not trying to get people to sin less. We want to get people saved, which means they've got to come to know Jesus. They, they've got to come to the only one who is able to save and redeem. There's one name given among men that we must call on and be saved, just Jesus. So that's what's happening here in Ephesus. The culture is changing. I did a little bit of research on this and I, I did some study on the Welsh revival. And some of you may be familiar with this, but the Welsh revival occurred in 1904 in Wales, England. And, and there was estimated that 150 or more, 150,000 people put their faith in Jesus, confessed, repented, are added to churches and chapels in Wales. Names are written in the book of life. Their lives are transformed from darkness to life. Marriages are restored. Lifestyles are changed. An incredible revival breaks out. Now God is behind it and to God be all the glory. God did that. But the, the man who is kind of credited with being central in this aspect was a man named Evan Roberts. A young coal miner and a blacksmith apprentice. I mean, not who you would typically think, but who God used. Initially, God gave him a vision of 100,000 souls to be won in his native land of England. Now, God certainly exceeded that. But listen, his basic message was this. It had four parts. Here's his message. Confess all known sin, receiving forgiveness through Jesus Christ. That was, that was point one. Confess your sin, receiving forgiveness and salvation in Jesus Christ. Number two, remove anything in your life that you are unsure about, that causes doubt, that you have to justify, that you're just kind of like, ah, that probably isn't okay, but I'm going to leave it. He says, remove it. Remove anything that you have doubt or feel unsure about. Number three, he says, be ready to obey the conviction of the Holy Spirit instantly. Just be ready to obey when the Spirit shows you what He wants to show you. Number four, publicly confess the Lord Jesus. Don't miss the opportunity to give credit where credit is due. The transformation you see in me is credited publicly to the Lord Jesus. That was it. That's the four-part message. That starts a revival in the city of Wales that leads to over 150,000 people get saved. But what happens here is within that city, bars and nightclubs start to close down. Why? We saw that wasn't part of the message. The message wasn't don't go to bars. We're against bars here in the church. The message was come and experience the true fulfillment that you're seeking in Jesus. And you're going to find that those other things just don't satisfy. What you really, really want is really found in the one who created you. And when you walk in fellowship with him, all those other things start to fade away. It's true. I can totally testify. Many of you can as well. But that's the message. That's the evidence. That's what starts to happen here. It just naturally occurs when you taste and see that God is really, really, really good. And a taste just isn't enough. And so that starts happening in Ephesus. Just like we, we saw that these idols and these temporary things, they're like duct tape in a fiberglass boat that really needs to be repaired. I may be speaking from experience. I tried it and it did not work. We almost sunk. But you need to fully restore it back to its original design. And you need to come to the creator, the designer, the Lord God of heaven and earth to be able to patch up those things. 
So that's what's happening here. The real problem is being satisfied with the real remedy, who is Jesus. And that's, that's Ephesus. So it's not about Diana. Their case is not about Diana. It's all about Jesus. And that's Demetrius's issue. It's starting to affect his pocketbook. He's losing some money. So he stirs up his fellow craftsmen. Just side note, he gathers together all those of a similar occupation. And then Demetrius goes to kind of the craftsmen craftsman's guild first and he says hey let me tell you what's going on right we're all losing money our our whole profession our main issue we're losing some money so look at verse 25 he calls them together workers of similar occupation men you know that we have our prosperity by this trade Our, our wealth our livelihood it's all dependent upon this we make idols man that's what we do that's what he's saying right and the way what Paul is preaching, this gospel message of Jesus Christ, it's starting to affect our bottom line because people are not buying our man-made idols as much. It's in danger. That was point number one to try and rally up this, this crowd. Verse 27, this point number two, he says, not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, listen, he says, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana, it's in danger of being despised and her magnificence destroyed. He's saying people are actually starting to not really care about that great glorious temple out there. And when he says destroyed, he's literally saying the real problem is Diana of the Ephesians is in danger of being dethroned for Jesus, who is the Christ. That's what Demetrius is saying. And he is absolutely right. That's exactly what Jesus is wanting to do in this city of Ephesus. That is what he wants to do in every single city on the face of this planet. He wants to dethrone whatever is sitting on the throne of our hearts because that's the place where he deserves to sit. That's what he wants to do. And it's happening culturally here in Ephesus. A lot of these things are taking place. And so Demetrius is upset about it. People are getting saved. People are being forgiven and set free. They're not buying into all this rubbish and buying these idols anymore. And so Demetrius is like, this is not good. We need to do something about it. And so what we're seeing here is in response to God doing an incredible work here in Ephesus through Paul, through Timothy, through Erastus, through Gaius and and Aristarchus, through Luke and others who are not named, here's going to be Satan's counterattack to what we're seeing in the movement of God here in Ephesus. So Demetrius stirs up the crowd, but look at what ultimately happens next. Verse 28 says, Now when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. So the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord, having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's traveling companions, And when Paul wanted to go into the people, the disciples would not allow him. Then some of the officials of Asia, who were his friends, sent to him pleading that he would not venture into the theater. Some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused and most of them did not know why they had come together. So from Demetrius's words to these fellow craftsmen, this craftsman guilds meeting, he's able to stir up some fear. He's able to stir up some anger. And I just get the picture that Demetrius goes running out of some meeting hall, right? There goes Demetrius, right? And then here comes the rest of these craftsmen. And they're all yelling. All we know is they're yelling, great is Diana of the Ephesians. They're just yelling at the top of their lungs as I picture them just running down the street. 
And people are like, great is Diana of the Ephesians. What's going on? Like, oh, like, great is, then spirits get, they get caught up in it, right? A mob starts to form, right? Because have you ever heard of people just like following a crowd, right? People kind of do that. They're just going with the current. You see enough people running and yelling. You're like, I don't even know why I'm running and yelling, but now I'm running and yelling. And that's what happens in the city of Ephesus. The whole city is thrown into confusion. How do we know that this is a counterattack from the enemy? Because what results, right? A whole bunch of confusion. I put the verse in your study guide. Is God the author of confusion? No, he is not, right? So what's confusion being caused? What is all this being? It's being caused by Satan. He wants to throw a bunch of people into confusion, get a mob going where he can start to throw people into a fearful frenzy to try and do something really dumb here or maybe something even catastrophic from at least this world standpoint to shake the church out of its place. So they take Gaius and Aristarchus, Two of, of Paul's traveling companions, a, a mob mentality. They grab these two Christians and they're going to take them into this theater. Now, note, note a couple things. This is not a theater like we're used to. This is not a movie theater that holds a couple hundred people or less. It's a theater that looks like this. This is a, a theater in Ephesus. You can still go here, modern day Turkey, and see ruins of this. There's a different picture, a different perspective. You can see it kind of sunk into that hillside. It, it can, that can hold an estimated 25,000 people. Now, we're not given the number, but we're told the whole city is thrown into confusion. We're told the whole city rushes into this theater in one accord. So I think it's probably standing, you know, theater only. And there's a bunch of people. And I think Aristarchus and Gaius, I think they're right up front with Demetrius and some of these other people. Now with this whole mob surrounding them yelling, great is Diana of the Ephesians. This situation doesn't look good. It's starting to unravel pretty quickly. And again, most of the people don't even know what, what's going on. They don't even know why they're here. But I want you to see this. Look at verse 30. And when Paul wanted to go into the people, the disciples would not allow him. Think about this, right? This is a mob. Gaius and Aristarchus, I mean, they're looking like they're probably going to be martyred here. This is looking really, really bad. And what, is, what are we told Paul wants to do? He's like, I want to go in there. Paul's thinking, I don't usually get the opportunity to tell people about Jesus when there's 25,000 people gathered together. This is going to be efficient for me. Let me in there. Don't, don't you think that's amazing? We tell people sometimes we're, we're going places and we say, hey, be safe. Hey, I want you to be safe. Listen, drive safe and be wise and walk circumspectly and all that stuff, but also be bold. Right? Be bold. I think about Paul. He's not a safety first guy. He's a God first guy. God, what do you want me? I'll go in there. Right? Think about Paul. He's like, what's the worst thing that's going to happen? Um, I live because it's far better that I would go and be with the Lord. To live is Christ and to die is gain, Paul would say. So what do you say? Let me in there. I want to go. I want to go preach to these people. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But his friends are going to say, Paul, no, please don't do that. And there's even officials in the city of Ephesus saying, Paul, please don't do that. And I think, I think even ultimately the Lord, it wasn't time for Paul to go in there yet. And he doesn't do that. But note that he wanted to. Verse 33 says, here picture this mob inside this theater. Verse 33, and they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward, and Alexander motioning with his hand, and people... And wanted to, let me start that up. And Alexander motioned with his hand and wanted to make his defense to the people. But when they found out that he was a Jew, all with one voice cried out for about two 
hours. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Now, this part is a little interesting. We're, we're told another name here in this situation. We're told of a man named Alexander. And we're told he's put forward by the Jews and he's going to make a defense. Now, he raises his hand up to get the attention of the crowd to make his defense. But he does not get a chance to make his defense because someone says, oh, I know that guy. He's a Jew. And they connect him with Paul, who by ethnicity is a Jew. And so they start yelling, great is Diana of the Ephesians. Now, the question becomes, well, well, what was his defense going to be? Is Alexander, is he going to defend Jesus? Is he going to try and defend Paul? Is he going to try to defend the way? And listen, it's speculative. I don't know for sure, but I don't think so. I think Alexander was going up there to throw Paul under the proverbial bus. I think he was going to take a step back and say, hey, we are not a part of these guys at all. Now, where would I get an idea like that? Look at a couple of these verses. Paul is going to leave Timothy. We just saw Timothy go to Macedonia. Eventually, Timothy is going to be sent to this city of Ephesus to be the pastor, the shepherd over this church here. So same city, but Paul's going to write him two letters. First Timothy 1, 18 through 20, he says this. This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may, may, you may wage the good warfare, having faith and a good conscience, which some having rejected, listen, some having rejected concerning the faith have suffered shipwrecked, of whom are Hymenius and Alexander, whom I deliver to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So is this the Alexander? I mean, the same, same city, same name, maybe, what about this one? Second Timothy four, verse 14. He says this, Paul speaking to Timothy, Alexander, the coppersmith did me much harm. May the Lord repay him according to his works. Remember back when Demetrius calls the, the craftsmen together, he calls all those craftsmen of similar trade, right? Demetrius is a silversmith. Alexander is a coppersmith. I think Alexander is part of this opposition that is against what is going on here. I think they would have been standing in the front together trying to make a defense against Paul and ultimately against Gaius and Aristarchus. That's what's kind of happening. Now, they don't get to that point because we see these people start yelling for two hours. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. I mean, yelling until they're hoarse. I mean, can you, can you imagine that? I mean, yelling the same thing over and over and over again. I mean, that's crazy. That's mind boggling. And I think some of us, we can take a step back and we can look at this saying, man, those people are crazy. Those, those people are silly. Those people are ridiculous. They're crying out for a temple that doesn't house a living God. They're shouting for nothing. Idols are nothing. What a waste. How silly these people are. And we can kind of look at it like that and totally dismiss them. But I want to ask you, Christians, please don't look at it that way. I want you to try and flip this around and remember what we were just told about the Apostle Paul. How did Paul look at it this way? He had compassion on these people and wanted to go into them. He wanted to share with them. Right? How would Jesus look upon these people sitting in this crowd yelling the same thing over and over and over for two hours? Would Jesus say, those people are so silly. Those people are so foolish. Oh, what a ridiculous thing to do. Or would Jesus say, I'm moved with compassion because they're acting just like a bunch of people who don't have a shepherd. Think about that. We live in a culture that has a crazy amount of diversity. 
And we see a lot of people do a lot of things that to us, we can say, well, that's silly. That's ridiculous. I don't get that. Or better yet, we could say, I have compassion on them because they just don't know who they're supposed to worship. They don't know who is worthy of worship or better. They don't know the way they're created to worship. And I want you to think about that. That's, that's moving to me because we're seeing such similarities even as an application to us. Here in Ephesus, this church is leading the way with great compassion, but yet we're, we're still seeing some people like Demetrius and Alexander, they're on the forefront. They've made their stand. They're in direct opposition, but please note, not everybody's that way. We read twice, there's confusion, and most people in that theater, potentially at capacity at 25,000 people, most, more than half, over 12,500 people, they don't even know what they're doing. Can you let that sink in? Not everybody is a Demetrius or an Alexander that you come into contact with. Not everybody is standing there in fierce opposition about the gospel that you, Christian, are an ambassador for. There's a whole bunch of people, listen, most of them, they just don't know. And we can leave a mark. We can imprint Jesus upon them by being who we are and sharing what we know. That's what's happening here in Ephesus. So take that to heart. Process some of these things. Back here in this text with the uproar seemingly not going to settle down anytime soon. Look at what Luke tells us next. Verse 35 says, And when the city clerk had quieted the crowd... He said, men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple guardian of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Zeus? Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess, Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you have any other inquiry to make, it should be determined in a lawful assembly. For we are in danger of being called in question for today's uproar and there being no reason which we may give an account for this disorderly gathering. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. So here comes the city clerk. He finally arrives and he's able to quiet this thing down. A guy's certainly gifted in crowd control, but I want us to know he's not just, just a city clerk per se, as we understand that he's, he's the chief administrative assistant to this, this, this governor over the region of Ephesus, this Asia Minor. So he has a lot of authority. He's the one who's taking public record of all that is going on right here. Any correspondence that would come from Rome to the city of Ephesus would be addressed to him. So he knows this is going to be something I'm going to have to account for. So when he gets up, people start shouting and he's going to quiet this crowd. But he's going to say, listen, it's common knowledge. Everybody knows Ephesus is where Diana is worshipped. He says, that's not to dispute. Everybody knows this. But then he says, these two guys, Gaius and Aristarchus, the guys that you want to do things rashly towards, they are not temple robbers. They're not blaspheming the name of Diana. And again, we're seeing that powerful truth that they're not coming out here speaking evil. That's not the way that they're shining light and love by speaking evil of what these people are into. They're speaking the truth and letting the conviction of the Holy Spirit do what the conviction of the Holy Spirit can do. Lead them into the truth. 
So we see them. They're going to share this. So the, the city clerk's like, there's nothing, there's nothing that can go on with these guys. If, if Demetrius, if you have a problem, Alexander, if you have a problem, you need to go through the right channels. Courts are open. Proconsuls are here. Let's do this the right way. Because he knows, he's kind of protecting his own job here. He knows that Rome comes down swiftly and sternly upon civil disobedience. There's no reason for them to be gathered in this place. And if Rome finds out, they're going to come with a heavy hand. So he says, we need to deal with this. And, and he does. He's able to kind of quiet this thing down. And it's going to dismiss without further occurrence. But I want you to know that doesn't change the fact that it got to this point. This doesn't change anything about how impactful the way the church, this Christian movement has been in Ephesus. Right? It still got to this point, and for most of these people, now it's only exposed it even more. I think God is only going to be able to shine more light and more truth towards most of these people who are like, why are we there in the first place? What are these guys all about? And they get, now I get to tell you even more about Jesus. Now I get to shine more light into your life. I think God continues to use this. But as we start to close this out this morning, kind of going through the text a little rapidly, I want us to, to come back to this question. When we think about leaving a mark, I want you to come back to the question yourself and just say, Christian, where are you leaving your mark? When you think of, of, of what you touch, I, I always have loved this picture. When you think of what you touch, where you place your hand, you've probably all seen it, but J-E-S-U-S. I, I love the thought of that. I love the thought of whatever I touch, Jesus is my handprint. That Jesus is what gets left behind. No, no, that is not always the way it works. Right? There's some things that are, they just got to burn down, Lord. That was not the way I should have handled that. So I don't, don't think that that's always the case, but I want it to be. I want to let Jesus be the mark that I leave behind. And I, I want you to know that, that ha if that's you, that has to be a calculated decision every single day. We don't accidentally mark this world for Jesus, right? Do we know that? We need to diligently say, Father, fill me with your Holy Spirit today so I can leave a mark of you, Jesus, behind, so I can represent you to the people around me. It has to take an active faith. It's not just accidental. It's purposeful. But I want you to think about, it. I have a story that I want to share with you that I love, and I think that it totally encapsulates what we're talking about here and how it can be very practical for you, each of you, in the little spheres of influence that you have. So listen to this story. The man's name is Oswald Golter. And he was a missionary in northern China during the 1940s. And after 10 years of service, he was returning home and his ship stopped in India. So while he's in India waiting to get on the next boat, he sees a group of refugees living in a warehouse area near the pier, unwanted by anyone else. And the refugees were just stranded there. So Golter went to visit them. As it was Christmas time, he wished them a Merry Christmas and asked them what they would like for Christmas. They said, we're not Christians. We don't believe in Christmas. Golter said, I know, but what do you want for Christmas? They described some German pastries they were particularly fond of. And so Golter cashed in his very own ticket, used the money to buy baskets and baskets of the pastries, took them to the refugees and wished them a Merry Christmas. When he later repeated the incident to a class, a student said, but sir, why did you do that for them? They weren't even Christians. They don't even believe in Jesus. And Golter says, I know, but I do. Think about that. What they aren't has nothing to do with who I am. 
How people are going to receive what you have to say has no bearing on what ought to be coming out of your mouth. We are looking at this the wrong way when we think about that. I love this account. He says, you know what? I'm going to love like Jesus because he who's been loved much loves much in return. Who, he who's been forgiven much forgives much in return. And that's me. And that's most of you. Which means it has nothing to do with those people. You just be who you have been called and created to be. You just be, be Christ-like, be filled with the Spirit, be obedient to those little pressings. I want you to know this. Most of the profound moments of your life where God is going to use you the most impactfully, they're not in the moments you think they will be, right? They're in those little things that, that maybe you don't think people are paying attention to as much. The guy who the Lord used to lead me to, the, to, to come to, to know Jesus as Lord, the guy who shared the gospel with me, he was a total annoyance to me for years. His joy, his character, it totally frustrated me. I finally asked him, what is your problem? And I find out his problem isn't his problem. It's that I have a problem. I'm running away from something. But then he shares the gospel with me and everything that he had been doing had been leaving a mark on my life. That says what I really wanted, you have. And why I really didn't like you is because I couldn't find any other way to get it. Think about that. The people in your life, you have people in your life. They're watching you. They're seeing you. You're leaving a mark right now. We're all witnessing Jesus right now. The question is, are we doing it accurately? Are we representing a Jesus that is worth following? Are we, rep are we representing a Jesus that is worth surrendering your life to? If you're not Christians, great news. It's a fresh day to start over again. There is now, therefore, no condemnation in Christ Jesus. You shake that off. You get back up and wash those hands and say, Jesus, I want your handprint to be overlaid upon mine from this point forward. You may have to do that again and again. I have to do that. But that's my heart. That's my goal. And we've just seen the evidence of what God can do here in Ephesus. So I want to encourage you, walk in that. Be filled with the strength and supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ and walk in that. And for someone else who may be, maybe, maybe you're here, you don't yet know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. I want you to know that he loves you more than you can even fathom. I want you to know that he died on a cross taking your place so there's nothing else that has to hinder you from coming to him. He paid the price. He did the work. And he beckons you to come. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, Jesus says. So if that's you this morning, reach out and take his righteous right hand and say, God, I need your forgiveness. I want your life transformation. I want you to do this work in me. Amen.